Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to a very special Monday edition of On The Tape Podcast on President's Day. A very special guest with us, Bethany McLean, contributing editor of Vanity Fair, contributor now Business Insider, former Goldman Sachs investment banking analyst, host of podcast Capital Isn't, which you can find in your favorite podcast store, best-selling author. We're going to get into your most recent book, The Big Fail, which looks at the pandemic. I got to know you before I ever met you on the smartest guys in the room at Enron, and we can talk about all the books, but great to have you here, Bethany. A lot to talk about. You were here with us exactly a year ago, and a lot was about to happen. A lot had already happened. Let's talk about the big fail in the book and how that's going and and what's the feedback on it. Marvelous. So the book came out in the fall. I think that the world is not ready to look back on the pandemic yet. I would argue that it's important, but I think timing-wise, it was it was awkward. And, and the book came out right as more important events were superseding it in the Middle East. So it's it's been a little quieter than I think Joe and I would have liked. I co-authored it with Joan O'Sara, with whom I also wrote All the Devils Are Here about the f- financial crisis. Somebody who read it said, you're just going to make enemies everywhere you go because it's not easily right wing or left wing. And a couple people who have read it have said to me, I can't tell what your politics are, which I think is a compliment. But in something that has such an ideological divide as the pandemic, that's not necessarily a good thing. People want to read what they already think. So the outcome, having looked, I've not read the full book, I'll be honest with you, but I've obviously read, I promise you, I will read it. I could lie and say I read the book. I think it's okay. (laughs) But let me say, no lies. But but the takeaway is that, you know, the rich were in a great spot during the pandemic and the not rich kind of forced to deal with more of the issues that, you know, the rich got to kind of go away. And so there are socioeconomic consequences that have now occurred as a result. I think in the in the time people, maybe the U.S. government did what they thought was best, They you know, because there was no precedent for this really uh, to do. So talk about, I guess, that aspect, because we're still living that today in terms of with the impact of that. And 
How have things changed permanently, you think, in society as a result? The book looks at the lockdown strategy and basically traces the fact that there, despite the fact that we all talked about following the science, there was no science behind it. And Joe and I are both very skeptical of the damage that was done by lockdowns to small businesses, to underprivileged children who couldn't go to school for years. And people now say, well, there weren't any lockdowns. Okay, well, something happened, right? A lot of small businesses were closed. A lot of kids were kept out of school. And I think if it hadn't been for the privileged people being able to work from home from Zoom, we probably would not have had lockdowns for as long as we could. But that exposed a huge socioeconomic divide who could stay at home and work from Zoom and take care of their kids and help their kids with their homework and who were essential workers who had to go out and put themselves at risk and not have anybody at home to help shepherd their kids through school. So that's one part of the book. It looks also at how the Federal Reserve's policies, because they inflated asset prices, that went to the benefit of asset owners. And so even all the the studies that have come out recently, which have surprised me to some extent, but about wage gains for those at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, which is true. And even after inflation, the numbers are better than, than, than I probably would have expected. But still, most of the wealth gains have gone to those who are already well off. So the pandemic both exposed our divides and exacerbated them. And just as a broader note on this, I have never understood why how we, we think we should handle a pandemic should have anything to do with your ideology. And yet things like beliefs and masks and lockdowns became a sign of whether you were a good progressive Democrat or whether you were a Trumper. And if you think about it, just step back and think about it for a second. How absurd is that? Well, we thought about it a lot. I mean, like essentially, though, it has to do with who was in the office, who was setting the agenda at the time, in my opinion. And, and again, that probably reveals my politics a little bit. I think people forget that the Trump administration, they are the ones that started Operation Warp Speed in an effort to find um, a vaccine, pumping billions of dollars into U.S. pharmaceutical and biotech companies to find that. But they are also the ones that politicized that very vaccine when it came about. And then really, once they were no longer in office, obviously set about... Um, really making it this kind of political sort of thing. They did the same thing with masks. And we're still seeing that we're doing this podcast right now a few days after the Super Bowl. And there are parts of America who don't want to recognize some participants in that game, the game that actually was the most watched game in the history of the Super Bowl because of a couple of the people's politics in a way. I mean, just I mean, like, like we have reverberations. When you and Joe set out to write this book, obviously you wanted to highlight all these issues that you just talked about. But what are some of the things that you think you learned, um, and I guess you learned in the response to having this conversation at, at a time where none of us are really wearing masks anymore, lockdowns aren't there. We still, to your point, are feeling the ripple effects of some of those sorts of things. What have you guys learned? Like, what, what will be the the postmortem? Um, uh, you know what I mean? When you look back on kind of the response to the book, I unfortunately think the postmortem is that we we never learn and we don't want to look back. I used to with every book I wrote, whether it was my Enron book or All the Devils Are Here. I'd have this silver lining about here's how we're going to come out of this, having learned a lesson and we're going to be better and stronger going forward. And I think I've become a little more, I hope not cynical, but a little bit more skeptical that that's ever the case. I don't think we want to look back. And I get it. Those years were so ugly and so raw for all of us and frightening. And I think people don't want to look back. But the, 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 the deeper problem is that the one thing 
you guys will probably guess it, that best predicts countries' ability to respond to a pandemic, trust. Trust in government, trust in each other. And our trust in government and in each other is more frayed now, not stronger. So we've come out of this weaker than we were before. And I wish there were a better way to go forward from here. You just mentioned the wage gains that we've seen on the lower end, right? And so this time around, this crisis, I think the powers that be, whether the combination of monetary obviously really helped the asset owners, but it also helped keep things afloat. It avoided a sort of credit event that a lot of folks were really worried about, right? If we were really going to attack this problem the way that they thought it should be attacked. But the flip side of that is that it did keep a lot of individuals solvent. It kept a lot of small businesses solvent, right? And so when you think about where we are right now, the Fed is still trying to deal with these kind of after effects between this extraordinary monetary and fiscal stimulus. Look at all of, I guess, the employee empowerment movements that we've seen. We've seen a whole host of them, right? And then look at just wage gains on the lower end. On the flip side of that, we are seeing work from home and all these other trends. Obviously, AI is playing somewhat into this narrative, at least from a productivity standpoint, where we're seeing mass layoffs right now are high paying white collar jobs. And so I'm just curious how that kind of fits into a a lot of the investigation that you did in some of these, these, because we might see a narrowing of those gaps. I don't know if you caught that co-pilot, the Microsoft ad at the Super Bowl, they're really trying to focus on this empowering all sorts of different people to achieve their dreams. And I'm not like towing the line for Microsoft, but that narrative is humanizing AI. And it's actually meant to kind of, you know, level set some of these things that have been obviously very apparent prior to the, you know, the proliferation of technology for all, I guess. Yes. Well, let me start with the last part of that. And I hope that this this is not just Microsoft creating a narrative that benefits Microsoft, Mm -hmm. right? I think we have a long way to go to see if AI actually does benefit all of us. I completely understand why Microsoft is trying to sell it that way and why the powers that be are trying to sell it that way, whether that's what it actually is or not. I think there are a lot of questions about that. I would break your earlier comments into two parts, the fiscal stimulus and the monetary stimulus. And I do think that what we saw that was different this time than the global financial crisis was that there was a real effort to get money to ordinary Americans and to small businesses. And even if you can quibble about the fraud that took place in those programs. People were in a rush to get money out as quickly as possible, and I am forgiving of that. I think the Fed was in a no-win situation in the sense that the Fed had to come to the rescue with guns blazing Mm. and everything it had in order to save the markets from a complete meltdown in the spring of 2020. But I think the reason that we were at a stage where a complete meltdown was possible was because of things that had gone unfixed in our markets over the previous decade. It wasn't just the pandemic. It was pre-existing weaknesses in the treasury market that everybody knew were a problem if a crisis hit. It was the shadow banking system that has mushroomed since the global financial crisis and is supposed to be outside the Fed's safety net and is not. And all of this raises, I think, two ongoing questions, which is if the Fed's rescues keep happening, having to get bigger and bigger and bigger. What happens if the Fed can't save it? And do we really want the Fed having to save the entire system? And here we are once again with the equity markets showing that they are completely responsive to what the Fed does. And I mean, maybe you can say thus thus it was ever so, but not the way it's been since the financial crisis. And I'm, I'm not sure that's healthy either because the Fed literally can't. They have to be responsive to what the market is doing. And I don't know that that's a great dynamic. So from the moral hazard perspective that we clearly live in that era, we're going to be in the era for a long time. When does the debt start to matter? When does the deficit start to matter? What's the breaking point for that? Are we just going to go another generation just absorbing this since U.S. is still, quote, the sexiest game in town? What are your thoughts on that? 
Right. So we all start to sound crazy when you say the debt is going to eventually matter because it hasn't mattered for (laughs) so long, right? Right. And anybody who said that for the last couple of decades has just been dead wrong and has looked like a Cassandra because each time we keep managing to come out of it. I am no longer going to sit here and say that the debt is going to matter even soon, but, but it might. I mean, things have a way of being true until they're not. And when something is unsustainable, at some point it does matter. So I think it's a danger to ignore it. But but I'm not going to say that we're going to have a problem tomorrow But but I do think the biggest difference is that we were paying 1% to 2%, right, on our debt for a 20-year period. And now it's 4 to 5 and maybe 6%, depending on the tenor where Yellen wants to play around. Right. That is a difference to me because that amount of interest sucking up – so I do – I feel like we're just at the beginning stages of realizing that over time. So maybe – Well, well, we might be, but – yeah. You know, th- that's what I found so interesting about yesterday's inflation rating is that I think we've been in this sort of perhaps false optimism that interest rates were going to come back down and that this inflation thing was over and we were going back to an era of really low interest rates and therefore this problem wasn't going to be a problem. But what if it is? I'd add to that another topic that we delved into pretty deeply in the book, which is everybody knows this, but man. Did the pandemic shine a light on it? And that's the mess that our healthcare system is. And that's also another burgeoning crisis because the amount of GDP that it consumes and in such an incredibly ineffective way cannot keep climbing. It's simply unsustainable. And so we all know that America's outcomes during the pandemic in terms of excess deaths were worse than most other developed countries. And that's perhaps bad enough. But if you look at it relative to our healthcare spend, and the fact that we spend basically twice as much as a percentage of GDP on healthcare as any other developed country, then those numbers look really terrible. Because then you say, wait, if we're not even getting a healthy population that can withstand a pandemic better than other people out of this, and in fact, we're getting a less healthy population out of this, what is happening? That's another issue that preys on my mind. So you were here, like I said, exactly a year ago, basically. And that was right after the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried and right before Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. So we were right in the middle of all that. So things have happened, right? Mm-hmm. Crypto's recovered. There's ETFs now a lot in that world. So I'm going to talk about that. And also, we're going to get the sentencing. And But the banking system showed, you know, nobody saw it coming. Right. The Fed certainly didn't see it coming. And now we're going to go through this commercial real estate thing. It seems like it's a slower moving train wreck. But I'd love you to talk about crypto and then the health of the banking system and commercial real estate. Well, let's go Let's go to SVB first, because I do find that fascinating. I mean, we all, and me too, if you had to predict a problem somewhere in the financial system, you would have said it's going to come from the shadow banking system, right? It's going to come from the private credit market somehow. It's going to come from, from something to do with hedge funds and the basis trade again. But it, it's going to come from within the regulated banking system. And it just goes to show that these things are always where nobody's looking. But I, I do think that policy since then also raises a question about how important small banks are to America's future because everything we do, we talk about the importance of small banks and everything we do makes life and life harder for anybody but but the mega banks. So there's this gap between what we say is important and how our policies actually seem to play out. Crypto, I don't know, you guys know more, so much more about it than I do, but it just seems to me that it's just leveraged play on interest rates and optimism and the lower More interest pessimism. R- the crazier the optimism, the more it's a wild bull market, crypto goes up. And as soon as some fear and skepticism starts to come back, crypto goes down. Is there anything to it beyond that? 
we've noted this over the last few years, the correlation to the like, the riskier assets in the equity link world that we live in is, is really high, right? Yeah. And so like to me, most of the pillars of the bull case for Bitcoin in particular, and that is really the one that has won out. I mean, like all the shit coins and all that stuff and NFTs and all those financialized goofy sort of things, yeah. they've all kind of gone away, right? And so really it comes down to Bitcoin. I mean, you saw Jack Dorsey with his Satoshi t-shirt um, for the world to see sitting next to Beyonce in a box at the Super Bowl. I mean, the Bitcoin Maximus, they've won. And, and I guess my view very simply is like, it's just become another risk asset. A lot of people, you know, we'll talk about, why do we talk about gold? You know, you know what I mean? Like for the same thing, it does, so it's just nerd gold, I guess, yep. is the point. <laughs> and the fact that it's nearly a trillion dollars, you know what I mean? And it's become really liquid and it's been validated by the likes of Fidelity and with all these spot ETFs, it's here to stay. And the fact of the matter is going back to the fall of 2022 at the height of pessimism as it relates to the equity markets, at the height of pessimism as it related to the Fed's ability to kind of do all the things that we've talked about, you know what I mean? Because that was a vote of non-confidence, I think, in the Fed's ability to kind of manage inflation and the like. We had SBF blowing up. We had a bunch of other exchanges blowing up. We had equities careening lower. And that was it. Like, think about it. They all bottomed in and around the same time. And here we are as we're recording this. Bitcoin's above 50,000. The S&P is very near 5,000, near an all-time high. And everything just seems fine. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I think the correlation, I think, to NVIDIA and to like all this other stuff. But remember, we also have a Tesla, which is white hot as anything about two years ago. It's down 50% from its all-time highs in late 2021. That was a similar time where crypto was making all-time highs or whatever. So it can go the other way too. It can always go the other way. I love that. Nerd gold. That's my new favorite. Yeah, I didn't coin that by any... (laughs) Really? Oh, bummer. Well, you take credit for it. Start start it. (laughs) That's so fantastic. But yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say in less clear lingo, I guess, which is that it just seems to me that Bitcoin is a way to bet on mood. If there's any substance to it that is not correlated to the mood about the market, I'm still waiting to see that. But I'd love to see I'd love to see the charts over. Well, the other thing actually. is the true believers, um, you know, it's locked up like a third to it, you know what I mean, or whatever. So the float is small, right? And so when you think about I, I you know, and this kind of I, I guess Tesla would be a good example too, is like when you think about how much Elon before he started selling in 2021, how much he owned of that, how much of his cronies owned of it, how much guys like Barron and, you know, like all those guys who are never going to sell, that was a very low float sort of situation too. And now that they all have lots of reasons to sell, the bloom is off the rose of the EV thing, right? Elon has actually shown plenty of warts why you might not be, you know, interested in buying a car from that guy, you know, for a whole host of reasons. And people are selling. And I believe he's probably selling because he's having margin calls. I know we don't want to do the Elon thing just yet. I know she, right. she's got lots to say. <laughs> yeah. But like my point is like there there seemed to be no reason to sell three years ago. And now there seems to be very few reasons to buy. Well, I would say just that was the other thing that was occurring when you were on last year was he just actually was forced to buy Twitter months prior to that, right? And now we've seen evolution of that. And we all have our reasons to believe why he bought Twitter in the first place, right? And that's now all coming out as well. So I definitely want to talk about your thoughts on Musk here. You talked about it last year with us. Exactly. You said somewhere between genius and a fraudster, you always find somebody like this. So let's talk maybe about Elon Musk and his role at Tesla and his role right now in society, which is really crazy. Well, I did want to take on to one thing you said, which I which I do find fascinating. I was having a debate with a friend of mine. In business, in the markets, does the truth always out? In other words, if a company is fundamentally flawed, at some point, will it collapse of its own weight? Or can something that is unsustainable actually become sustainable just due to financial market dynamics? And I think that's the question about Tesla. That's the question about our national debt. Do 
do things fall of their own weight eventually or can they just keep self-perpetuating? And I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to that. Anyway, I think what's happened with Tesla is fascinating and with Musk is fascinating because Twitter reveals that the, the god has feet of clay, right? right? Even if people still don't necessarily want to see that. But you can't look at how he's run Twitter and think that this guy is always a genius who makes all the right calls at, at every moment. And I do think there is this weird thing in our society that gets back to your point, which is that we take these people who have been successful in one area of life and anoint them as gods who must know everything about everything. And they don't. And maybe that's not fair to them in some ways either. I mean, not that Musk has... <laughs> Musk has certainly argued for his own godlike status, but just because somebody's brilliant and has accomplished amazing things doesn't mean they know anything about Harvard's DEI policy. Just because you created Tesla doesn't mean you know how to run Twitter. They're really, really different companies. We have this conflation that somebody who's achieved something and made a billion dollars must know everything there is to know about everything. It's just not true. When you wrote the article about Enron in early 2001, before the whole thing imploded, right? You, you see certain things. To me, forget about Musk for a second. Tesla, when the CFO who was there for years resigns, you know, late last year, kind of fall, that's always a flag. I know it's a flag for you. I throw the flag, you know, up in the air. I'm, okay, there's a reason for this. It doesn't have to be nefarious necessarily. It's just be like, I know what's coming. And I know that our margins aren't sustainable. And I know I'm, I'm going to get out and I'm, it could be that simple or it could be something more. And we talked about this last time. You've always harped on kind of auditors and their roles, how they play. Yes, they can sign up on Gap, but not Nine Gap and all these other, you know, warranty reserves when it goes in, into Tesla. So do you believe, and it won't happen now, it'll be years from now, they will end up seeing something at Tesla that may have been somewhat nefarious from an account? Do you have any reason to believe that? I think it depends on two things. It depends on what happens over the next year. And then if something bad does happen, it depends on prosecutors' appetite to unearth that nefarious thing. And both of those things are, well, the second one is definitely a moment in time. You have cases where prosecutors throw the book at somebody and you have cases where they look the other way. And so it depends on the appetite to look into it. If you want to look into something and find something, you you always can. But sometimes the desire to look into it isn't there. And then I think Tesla just gets back to this idea of does the truth always out? Musk has gotten through a lot of difficult times in Tesla's history before because the interest rate environment made it possible for him to continue to raise money. Does what's happened at Twitter create some discomfort in his investor base such that it's not as easy for him going forward? Do the true must believers stay true true must believers? If interest rates go back down to near zero, can Tesla skate through basically anything? The answer isn't in Tesla. It's in the external world. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if you look at the whistleblower complaints, for, forget about the, the cars themselves and whether full self-driving works and all that crap. The whistleblowers themselves about what's gone on with some of the accounting, with some of the stuff, it's there. It's there. But people choose. And I think the way the government always operates and the SEC, they don't want to be the quote reason that a stock goes down. They do it after the cleanup, right? They, the stock goes down 80%. Then they come out and say, oh yeah, we're looking into this because they need to save face. They never want to be the one to technically cause it. But I'll I'll put this out there again. If we can close the book on this, Tesla, that when you do decide to write the book on Tesla, I'm doing it with you. Okay. I, I, I okay. said this last time. So you did. We're, all right. So you when did. that happens, but you, yeah. you, you did, you did, and I'm in. But you know, it is another <laughs> fascinating thing that history just repeats itself endlessly because so many people have screamed at me on Twitter when Twitter used to be relevant and people used to even bother to scream. They've said basically, "You idiot! Look at Tesla's stock. You're just right. wrong because right. look at the stock." You, you guys know, obviously, the absurdity of that. Right? It's a totally circular argument. 
because it's good, the stock went up. Because the stock went up, it's good. Well, no, maybe one thing has nothing to do with the other. Well, I think we're, we have that right before us right now with NVIDIA. And, you know, yeah. here's a company that has gained $850 billion in market cap in, in six weeks. If you think about in the S&P 500, there are probably six or seven stocks that have $850 billion market caps, okay? And and so a 50% gain in, you know, this amount of time, it, it seems ludicrous. You pulled forward all the excitement about best case scenarios of the not so distant future in a matter of, in this case, weeks. But, you know, obviously in Tesla, it was that period from the lows in 2020 to its highs in 2021. And I, I think we have the potential to see this sort of again. So like, I, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. I wanted to ask you though this, Bethany, because, you know, going back to, and, you know, Danny just mentioned, you wrote the book on Enron, but it wasn't something that you did as a postmortem. This is something that you were looking at while the story was still really good. You have a tremendous knack for being contrarian in the face of a lot of criticism and in these true believers, but then actually being able to write the book on it. Talk to us a little bit about that because Danny, Guy, myself, we do that on CNBC. We do it on our podcast. We get screamed at a lot, whether it's emails, whether it's whatever social media thing people are doing. And we're doing it on a daily basis. Talk to us a little bit about that because you have to build up a sort of shield. Does it bother you less now? No, because we're more ephemeral at it. I I mean, so when when we think about it, you know, like for instance, no one's saying, hey guys, great job over the last two years on Tesla. We haven't heard that um, (laughs) at all, but we've been picking apart the fundamentals, not just the sentiment, not just the market craziness, as we say on Fast Money, kind of surrounded the trade. I think we will be doing the same thing in NVIDIA. And a lot of people are pointing at us and calling us the three bears or this and that, whatever. That's fine, man. Like, you know what I mean? We're here. We show up every day and we are very transparent about it. You've done it on such a big scale. um, And I think it's so impressive and we give you so much credit. But so talk to us a little bit about that mentality of doing that. I think it's not always a positive thing. I think I am innately wired to be a contrarian and that sometimes can be just as dangerous as being a believer because if you're forming your beliefs just in opposition to other people rather than on the fundamentals, you have to be aware of that tendency in yourself, right? You have to know which way you're wired and then you have to push back against it a little bit. So if your response is always contrary and you have to be willing to say, well, am I just being contrary because I don't want to think like everybody else? Or am I actually seeing something? And I think that's interesting. But for sure, throughout most of my history, I don't feel a lot of need to be well-liked or to have other people tell me that I'm brilliant and that isn't this great. Because most of the time when you go along with belief in something that is that is unsustainable, you get your head handed to in the end. So you might as well think for yourself. And even if you get your head handed to you, at least you thought for yourself along the way. Well, that's right? the point about being early in the market. You're not a, you know, a market participant, right? You're a journalist. One of the things that attracted us to, you know, Guy and I met Danny on the set of Fast Money and he was calling, uh, you know, a specific sector, the big long. And we loved, the, you know, the, the contrarian sort of nature of it. We loved his thought process. We knew of him. We knew his reputation within the business. And we were like, we got to do a pod with this guy. When I think about that, since I've been in the business, I started at SAC Capital in 1997, okay? And so I had a front row seat to watch this kind of inflation of a sort of equity bubble that even those guys there, had not seen in their careers, okay? So this was the internet stocks and and all that sort of stuff. But in our careers, we've never seen a bubble not pop and then overcorrect. Think about that. So if you think NVIDIA is going to be the, the first $4 trillion market cap company, it might be, but it will also decline at some point at least 50%, possibly 70 some percent from there. I mean, like that's just, take it to the bank. That's going to happen. It might be from here, but it could be from much higher. And then you look that much dumber for that much longer. 
I would say there's two different categories. We talk about stocks and names and, and really I go out of my way. I try to, to help people, to help the person that's looking at these meme stocks. Forget NVIDIA for a second. Mm -hmm. There are the AMCs and the GameStops and all the bullshit that you know aren't necessarily good fundamental stories. And then there's NVIDIA, which is you can't argue against fundamentals right now, but you can argue against valuation. I think there's two camps to this. And all we try to do is point out to people, and we've talked about this, Bethany, that you want contrarians. You want people that challenge whatever your favorite short is. Let me go find the best long. Let's hear the story. Vice versa, right? That That's what you want to kind of do. And I, I think you're the same way. I think you like to uncover and help people and tell the story and just present it. They can do what they want with it, right? So- right. But most people, most people don't want that. Most people are not going to say thank you. Most people want to hear what they already think. And if you tell them something that is contrary to what they already think, they, they don't want to hear it. And I've always found that one of the weirdest contradictions in the market because it's a market. Skepticism is supposed to be as valued as belief. We're supposed to be fighting it out out there. And yet that's just not the way it works. Nobody will criticize you, at least not until it all blows up, if you're a believer and tell people to buy. And yet you can get your head handed to you if you're contrarian and there's something wrong wrong with being skeptical. Theoretically, it should work this way. It should be a battle place of ideas and you should battle place of analysis and you should be able to put it out there and have an argument about it. But people are way more emotional than that. And it's not just about the stock values themselves. It's the companies themselves. And even if the person that hears your argument or my argument or Dan's argument decides that they're going to take a job in the industry or at one of those companies, when you think about 401ks of, of people that have nothing to do with, with the big corporate decisions that go on, but are assistants and, and analysts and whatever that are there for 20 years, if they walk into a situation that the company may end up being worthless, those are important things to ask also when you're coming in as an employee into one of these companies. Entering AI right now, what's a company that I want to go work for? I'm coming out of college. Like, so I think this, this is not just about stock prices themselves, about the culture, companies, and kind of, and I think you touch on that in a lot of your books in general. By the way, one other book I just want to hit on and make sure that, because you did you wrote a book on Fannie and Freddie, okay? <laughs> it was like a post-mortem. This still is not resolved. No. Like, it's still, here we are. We talk about a quote, you know, interest rates and all this. What's the update there? Because other than, it, you know. it's, it's totally insane, right? I mean, it really is. And the only reason it's the insanity isn't more well-known is because people find Fannie and Freddie so inscrutable in part because they seem boring and in part because what they do seems so incredibly complicated. But they are the backbone of homeownership in America. And if they're broken, then the entire system is fragile. They were put into conservatorship in the fall of 2008, and this was supposed to be temporary. And here we still are all these years later. And I think we saw in the pandemic that the housing finance system is actually less stable as a result of what, what we've done. It's not more stable. Part of what the Fed had to rescue were mortgage rates because that's where a lot of mortgages are being held now, outside the banking sector, outside of Fannie and Freddie in, in mortgage rates. If the silver lining of the financial crisis was that we are going to come out of this really thinking about how do we finance homeownership, what makes sense for our society, we have not done any of that. And so to me, the Fannie and Freddie saga is yet another, I need to, we need to find something optimistic to talk about. It's yet another example of dysfunction because I can't believe we are here all these years later. And what happens, I've been told, is people in Congress take a look at it and they think, well, this is a topic that I can get my arms around and I can I can take care of this. And then they look at it and they quickly realize it's really complicated and it's really ideological and they back away very slowly. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, 
and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. We are six weeks into 2024. The stock market is very near an all-time high. It seems like the economy is able to deal with what seems like normalized interest rates. It seems like inflation has come down meaningfully from a period where we went, had this pandemic, and then we had this war in Ukraine and Russia, and we had all these further supply disruptions. We had really bad tensions with China. We have a trade war that continues for much more important reasons now than we did five years ago. We can all agree on that, right? Like things are going okay. We have 50-year low unemployment. We have wages at a place they haven't been in a long time, right? We have a pretty decent savings rate. We have consumer confidence. Things feel pretty good. And so, but here's the thing. Why is it that like it feels like, you know, at any moment the stock market could crash, the housing market could crash, we could be commercial in a, real in a, estate in a broader war in the Middle East, we could have a, a war in Asia. I mean, like, like it just I thought this was gonna be possible. No, I know, but what I'm saying is all, <laughs> he can't help all himself. The things, all the things like that are pointing to like things should be feel great, but they don't, I guess, right? Well, well life is always fragile, right? Even when things are going swimmingly, there's always a fragility right under the surface. And I think we're all very aware of that fragility after the pandemic. How can we not? Life was going swimmingly then. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue came this thing that people had been talking about for decades, the possibility of it. And suddenly there it was, and it shut down our existence and changed the world. So I think that awareness of how fragile everything is, I think that's reality. But that doesn't mean that you can't say that some things, yes, are, are, are going really well. And for sure, any economist before this happened would never have predicted the wage gains among lower income workers and the resurgence of some kind of worker power. And it remains to be seen how all of that plays out. But it's just a reminder that sometimes the more dire predictions get it wrong, too, because nobody saw that coming. You know, there is a possible argument that that continues because in the end, it's service workers, a lot of service workers who can't be replaced by AI, whereas a lot of white collar workers perhaps can. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but there is a shortage of service workers and those jobs are probably not going away. I mean, you can't have for a while 
AI doing your manicure and pedicure, your home health care needs. So there's something to be said for people not seeing things coming in ways that can be positive, too. Do you think it's strange that we're in an election year that the current administration that presides over all those things that I just mentioned, all those positives, right, that he rates so poorly on the economy right now? That That's the one thing that I'm actually having a hard time understanding a little bit. We could argue about this because it's something I actually don't understand, rather than something that I know. It seems to me that a lot of what happens in the economy is not shouldn't be blamed on a president nor credited mm-hmm. to a president. And so I'm not sure how much credit Biden deserves for the things that are going right economically. But at the very same time, I'm not sure how much blame he deserves for inflation, for instance. Those mm-hmm. dynamics were put in place before he became president. And a lot of these dynamics that dictate the economy are outside the control of a president. So I've never been sure that saying the economy is going well, therefore I love our president, is exactly the right. But if he loses, it will well, likely well, no, it will likely be because of the way voters feel he, about the economy. I know. Not I'm just saying it's not. voters, predominantly independents and Democrats, right? Like, like that would be the thing. And so that's what I don't understand because if everything is going so well- I should be clear. I, I agree with you. I'm just arguing that that shouldn't be the way we all perceive it. But yeah. but but I agree that that is the way that we all that we all perceive it. There's some numbers. JP Morgan had an interesting report last fall. There are some numbers about still real economic fragility at the bottom end of the spectrum. That is, people have burned through their savings from the pandemic, the cash infusions from the pandemic, that people are back to having very, very, very little of a cash cushion. So when you talk about why there isn't more more confidence, even if you're doing well and earning a wage, but you feel like it might go away at any moment and then there's nothing to fall back on, that creates just a sense of societal societal insecurity. There's no question that the lower end consumer starting to feel some pain. Yeah. Credit card, we've seen the, that debt. So that's going to be ha- that's not going to go away anytime soon. And that's why this cycle has been so interesting because it really became a secular not cyclical thing, given all the stimulus that came in. And who knows how long this can go on and last. But I think people's belief is if you want to be positive about something in a moral hazard way, Fed's got your back. You don't have to deal with this stuff. Now they're going to come out. I mean, honestly, that's just the truth. And so people are optimistic that the Fed's going to do the right thing. Treasury's going to do the right thing. That TALF 2.0 will have something for commercial real estate. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. And at some point, it's not going to be fine. And, and that's the part to me that scares me. So that's a near-term right. positive that the Fed has your back. Honestly, I don't know what what else. Yeah. Right. I guess that is a near-term positive, but it, that brings our conversation full circle because when can the Fed no longer have our back? Even if you don't care about moral hazard, is it just purely the size of the whole thing? It, does there come a point where the Fed can't have our back anymore because it's too big for even the Fed? Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, and, and this is kind of tying together a couple of the themes from the aughts. So think about like the financialization of like the commodity market, that, like that was kind of Enron's thing. And, and it led to, you know, obviously a massive calamity, right? And then if you think about the lead up into the financial crisis, I mean, I, I can think back to those periods. You and I were both sitting on trading desks, the banks and, and what they were able to do, you know what I mean, with with financial engineering. Like that was the hottest thing going. It literally in some ways rivals some of the excitement that we've seen in these tech cycles over the last 15 years since the financial crisis in a way. And I look at what's gone on in, the, you know, and we don't have to talk about the concentration in the MAG-7. I mean, if chat GPT-4, okay, had not come out in and around the time when the markets were near its lows, when sentiment towards crypto is like really poor and, you know, all that sort of thing. 
I'm not sure 2023, the stock market would have had any of this sort of excitement. I don't know where people would have flocked to, right? And I don't know the sort of weightings in the market that could have helped keep the market afloat, if you think about it. So now I think there's another massive short that is like kind of bubbling up right here. It is the fact that Microsoft has gained a trillion dollars in market cap over the last four months as people have gotten excited about what Copilot could mean across their business. It has flowed into all of these other mega cap, you know, Amazon and Google and this and that, whatever. And so I think about this and I think this is like potentially an accident waiting to happen, not too different than these other periods that we've been in. At some point in the early 2000, Yahoo stuck up one too many banner ads on, on, a, on a web page and that was it. And the whole thing came crumbling down. And Sun Micro that had been financing, you know, startups, you know what I mean? And that right. were buying their servers and this and this this chain, you know, like thing. And then fraud was revealed at Enron and WorldCom. And, the, and then we had a recession. And we haven't even had the recession that the stock market was pricing in Q4 of 2022. So I just feel like there could be a calamity coming. You could have another book on your hands here. Like, <laughs> I was about to say, you just took her. Yeah. She's counting on it for sometimes, the next year. Sometimes yeah. I wonder, is this revealing of a really dark streak in my personality that I have? <laughs> have become the chronicler of calamities, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to find something really well, happy. Well, we have a to title there, then the chronicle, chronicle of chronicler of calamities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's like chronicle of a death yeah. foretold or something yeah. like that. But yes, I think that you're right. And the, the interesting thing is that at the time, it's never possible to see the thing that later in retrospect becomes the tipping point. Like with the financial crisis, it was new century, right? Yep. But everybody shrugged and just said, well, that's new century. And nobody saw it as the beginning of what was almost the end. And when I think back to that, uh, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, I actually don't even remember what was first. Uh, but I'm sure that whatever it was was first. We didn't see it at the time. It just, Uniface. It's, the, it's, it's, it seemed like a one-off, right? It seemed like this company's getting into trouble. Well, they, didn't well, see... they laid too much fiber. Perfect. I mean, like, so, no, so, that's the same yeah, argument. No, I was no, about no, to... no, so, yeah. no, no, that's exactly the point. So yeah. here, this is really important. On Monday morning, okay, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about Microsoft's co-pilot. Microsoft's co-pilot is the reason why they invested $13 billion into OpenAI so they could have exclusive access to this technology so they could integrate it across this, like, recurring revenue model that they have with Microsoft 365 and a bunch of their other things. So they could charge more for it at a higher margin, right at a time where competition had been getting higher and higher, Google and the like here. And so the reviews of Copilot are not great. I don't have a single Microsoft product, okay? Not in my business, not in my personal life. I will never use Copilot. But what I might use is the Gemini Advanced from Google because I use Gmail for free. Alphabet has nine properties with over a billion users. They have three or four with over two and a half billion users. Like, so we see the threat there to Microsoft. Gemini is not doing particularly well because the technology is not as good as OpenAI's. So my point is they've pulled forward all the excitement in the stock market, but the products might suck for another few years. They, they might, and I hear you on all of that. There's a wild card here, though, that dictates so much of the course of business, and that's people. And I think you can't count out Sasha Nadella. I wrote about Microsoft back in 2000, was it 18 or 17? And it was when I found out that Gates and Balmer weren't talking anymore. And I set out to write this, you know, very tough story about the end of Microsoft and Gates and Balmer's feud. And I met Sasha and was like, this is going to be the weirdest story I've ever written because it's going to be like, look at all these bad things and how much Microsoft has screwed up, but this might be the beginning of, of the turnaround. And I think that guy's an exceptional CEO. And so you can't count out people. What he's been able to do with Microsoft and its stagnant culture and the issues that were in place when he took over is, I, well, I think- he's already done think, the thing, though. But so he, might, he, thing. Might, so, he might so, already so have the done the that thing. He's pulled you, 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 is you that might. he got exclusive access to the best technology that might be the most transformative might. technology. But if customers 
uh, on the enterprise side? And what does it cannibalize that they're already buying from you. the enterprise? And there might not be a consumer application because maybe no one cares about Bing search and they don't care about paying $20 a month for a chat bot or something. It all gets commoditized is what I'm saying. I, I hear you, but I think there are not many people who actually are really good CEOs. I think a lot of them appear to be really good CEOs because of luck and circumstances and timing. And who knows, maybe Satya just, maybe he just stepped into Microsoft at exactly the right time. I don't, I don't think so. And so I wouldn't count out that company. I think you bring up a great point, how important leadership is at companies. You bring in Bob Iger back into Disney just to kind of, you know, right the ship and do the thing. And it's really incredible what that can produce. And you're right. No one's saying to shorten Adela. I'm saying, you know, I think Dan's point is I'm, he's getting maybe too much of the doubt because of how good he is. But it is what it is. And it'll play out over time. Well, Bethany, listen, I mean, every time you've come on, it's been an incredible conversation. I think post-election or maybe right before election, we'll all be scared. Small, but small, maybe small, that'll be a good time whimper. we can call small and talk about what that's, what that's going to mean. You can have so much to write about in the next couple I mean, of years. Speaking, it, speaking of things. You, it's like James Earl Jones in Field of Dreams. You're still walking, walk right into that field and write something. Speaking of things, Nobody yeah. ever would have predicted, yeah. right? And maybe that's the lesson out of this podcast is beware what you can't see coming. But who would have guessed that this would be the election we're heading into, right? Well, you're going to have to come back because we have a smart contrarian over here, dumb contrarians over here. <laughs> and we got we to gotta, we gotta follow up on some of these things. Bethany, it was awesome to have you back on the pod. Thank you. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.